Hello and welcome to Revolution 22's podcast. We are a church from the downtown area of Boise, Idaho. Thank you for joining us today as we listen to God's word from the book of Genesis and the life of Joseph. We pray that the Lord will draw us to him as we find ourselves in the story of God amidst suffering. Um, We have been working our way through Genesis, uh, specifically the life of Joseph, and um, this week I I feel like it's part two to what was last week. I would encourage you to go back and listen to it. Um, Again, it was just more information than one could cover in one day without going extremely long, and so uh, that's where we are. We're in chapters 43 through 45, like the big chunk of section of scripture where Joseph is finishing the last bit of tests to his brothers coming back and him identifying himself and them now knowing that their brother's alive and that whole situation. Um, if you've ever heard that, I'm sure you have the, the, the analogy, the idiom that, that you lose the forest for the trees, like the idea of, of focusing in too narrow on one thing and you miss the entire thing. It's like standing in this beautiful forest and staring at this one tree and being like, wow, this is so amazing and not seeing the whole thing is like not, like you've, you've, yes, you guys have heard that. Okay, maybe you're not interacting with me. That's okay today. I won't take it personally. Um, th- there's, there seems to be in my own self a, a, a propensity to, to do the, that very thing in difficult situations. Like we all, we all experience that or see that in some way or another, whether it's interpersonal relationships or just the hardship of health or, or financial strife or what, whatever kind of difficulty you find yourself in, whether it's just yourself individually or it's a collectively or it's, it's, it's as a whole, all people, just this, this daunting realization that when we um, are faced with these things, and I'm, I'm perplexed at how often and saddened by myself, how often I focus in on that one Thing and lose sight of kind of the, the bigger picture. And it's, it's amazing how if you just step back a little bit sometimes, not always, but step back a little bit, you can look at something with a little bit broader view or a little bit bigger picture. You can tend to see um, and understand uh, how, how a situation might be um, different for us. But we're, we're, not, we're not confused by the fact that like life is hard, right? There's so many scriptures that talk about the need and the expectation and the hope for us to have um, the ability to, to persevere, to, to last. Just, just one, one of the scriptures, Hebrews 10, 36 through 39 says it this way. It says, for you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For, and uh, the author of Hebrews here is, is kind of combining an Isaiah and Habakkuk scripture together to make the quote here that he does out of the Old Testament. It says, yet a little while and the coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and, pers- and, 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 pers- uh, and preserve their souls. And so we see this, this idea in scripture that like life is hard and, and it's, you're going to need perseverance. You're going to need endurance. It's not, a, it's not a sprint. It's a long race. We've got to kind of settle in for that. But even understanding that, even understanding that one scripture or the many different spots that the scripture talk about endurance or perseverance, it's, it's one aspect of what God's doing. And if we just, just focus on that one thing, we t- tend to find ourselves like white knuckling life. If I can just hold on hold on as tight as I can, get through this. Like, if I can just figure out how to do that. And really, what I think is incredibly helpful for us is to, is to zoom out. 
Last week, we talked about this idea of, of, of grace and being, being given grace and extending grace. And if we just focus on that one aspect and we, we hold on to that, we, we can tend to miss the, the bigger picture. I believe that the life of Joseph, it does this just profoundly and brilliantly this week. God has, has woven together in his history this, this incredible story of one specific family that, that we can see all kinds of individual teaching points along the way, all the while it's set in the middle of his story. Um, to understand this, I'm just going to zoom out again real quickly. Back in May when we started Genesis, we spent three weeks kind of trying to give a, a structure to work within this group of Genesis, a section of Genesis. And so I would encourage you, if you didn't listen to that, to go back to it because I'm not going to do it justice. But we started back then saying that when we come to Scripture, we need to be reminded that this, this is a story of God, not a story about us that this is his story and that, that he is doing something. And so the story, it's in the beginning God. It's about God from the very beginning to the very end. We see that. And, and we know that the, the creation happened and, and God was, was made everything good. And, and the, the first two humans, Adam and Eve, sinned and they made a mistake. And, or they, they sinned and went against God. And because of that, they were exiled out of the garden. And in that moment, Genesis 3.15, after they've they've chosen to go their own way, choose their own way of thriving as opposed to surrendering to God's way of thriving. God says this to, to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So before pronouncing judgment on humanity, God promised to fix what we had broken by sending a savior king to, to rescue us. And so we know from the very beginning, the story is that God is, is working out his plan. And we talked about it back then. It's, it's, it's the people of God in the place of God, in the presence of God, under the authority of God. God's redemptive plan is making that a reality for us. And we see that over and over again through scripture as you start tracing him, making the people of God through the covenant with Abraham and continuing to, to make a, a place of worship through David and all the other things that we see in scripture of God trying to, of God working his way back. And so when we come to any story, any bit of history in the scripture, we need to remember that it's a, it's a point, it's a marker on a map that's already telling this story about what God is doing. And what happens so often in scripture and in, in church is we forget that God is, has a redemptive plan that's not just individually happening, but also collectively happening in his work. And so when we get to Joseph and we are working through the story of Joseph and we're, we're, we're kind of focusing in as the, as the narrative would have us on the interpersonal relationship between Joseph and his brothers and what's happening, you can tend to forget that like, oh, wait. God's still working his plan. Like there's a thread happening from that promise in Genesis 3 all the way through of his history. And so I wanted to, to focus on that real quickly. Verse, uh, chapter 45, verses 4 through 7, it says this. It says, uh, so Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. This is after he's, he's done the whole test with them. They've, they've wrestled. They're not sure how, what, 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 what's going to happen with them. And they feel like everything's going to go bad. And they, the cup of div divination was in Benjamin's satchel. And they were like, oh, no, God is going to like, take all of our, our trouble on, out on Benjamin. And this is going to kill dad, Jacob, Israel because Benjamin's his favorite son, because Joseph is no more. So this whole thing's happening. And they come back, and Joseph's trying to do his plan, and Judah, we'll talk about it in a second, just Judah comes and gives this long dissertation on why Joseph, whom he doesn't know is Joseph, shouldn't do what he's going to do. And this is Joseph's response after a very loud crying, like we talked about last week. He says, come near to me, please. And they came near, and he said, I'm your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. 
And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. And so in this one section, if we just look at the story, it's like, oh, look at Joseph is, is, we can say pretty clearly that Joseph understands his part in God's story. Like, hey, what you meant to do this way, don't worry about it. God actually is the one who did this. I now see my part. This idea of remnant is to escape or salvation. It's the same language that's used in Noah through the Noah covenant. Like this remnant is this idea. And for those of us that are trying to zoom out a little bit, go, wait, 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 wait. We were, we were told at the very beginning that, that, that God was going to do something through the seed of an offspring, remnant. This is going to happen. And so this is, our, this is our cue and this is our laser focus point to go, God's doing it. God's doing something now. The people of God are, are going through the family of Jacob or Israel with these, with these 12 sons. And if nothing happens, the famine's so severe, that family is wiped from the earth. And so this is our moment to go, oh, okay, there's the thread spot. God is, God is doing his promise. There it is. We're, we're tracking again. Here's the remnant. They're not going to stay in Canaan. They're going to come to Egypt, which lends us now to the prophecy to talking about the Exodus that moves forward about God doing his promise work again. So this is, a, this is a moment where you're like, oh, okay, okay. This is, this, is, this is bigger. And Joseph finally understands, and we've been saying this from the beginning, that we, we today, you and I, we will, we, will, we will flourish regardless of our circumstances by finding ourselves in the story of God. And in this spot, you can see Joseph has settled on this through the series of struggles and, and things that we've been talking about. He settled on, he says, no, it's not even what you did. Don't even be mad at yourselves for what you did. God did this. God did this to fulfill his promises, to bring this person, to, to, to aid in saving his people so that his people can still exist and that he can do what he promised to do back at the very beginning. And so when you see that, you realize that all of this interpersonal stuff, all of Joseph and Judah and Simeon and all these things that are happening here, God is still working across. If you just zoom out and go, oh, look at the thread is working its way all the way through. His promise is always true and he's always faithful. It's important for us to remember that because, because again, if we, if we get too focused in on just one aspect of the story, although there might be, might be much truth for us to learn from that, we have to remember that God is, while doing this, he is continually doing what he came to do. His redemptive plan from the beginning of time is being worked out through broken people, bringing broken people to him. And this is important for us to see because if we stop and just say, oh, this is what Joseph does with Benjamin, or this is what Judah does with Benjamin, or this is what Jacob does with Reuben, like we, we can learn stuff, but we forget. We can very quickly forget that God is at work. So it's important for us to zoom out and go, man, look at the forest. Look at the trees in the forest. But it's also really incredible for us at the same time to zoom in. And so I want to do that real quickly in this text. So we see that the story here, the remnant, this is a promise that's going to happen here that God is saying, hey, he's preserving life. He's doing it. He's bringing about salvation and escape for the people of God to make it through this famine that would otherwise wipe them out from the earth. In fact, many other people are wiped out from the earth during this famine, but, but God's plans are moved forward in his people because of his promise. Then the other thing that this shows us, which is really, really powerful, and we talked at the very beginning about the family structure and how things are supposed to be the firstborn has 
This is back in May again. I would encourage you to go back and listen. The firstborn has a double inheritance. They're the ones that are responsible for things. But we, we continually see through Scripture, even though that's the, the cultural setting that God has in place, he keeps usurping it in different ways. And this is no, this is no exemption from that. Like the same thing happens here because in, in chapter 43, verses 8 through 10, they're trying to get back to Egypt to get food. And, and Israel, Jacob, their dad, is like, no, I'm not sending Benjamin. And so they've been trying for, at le- it seems like, at least a year, maybe at this point, to say, hey, we need to go get some more food. We need to go get some more food. We need to go get some more food. And instead of it being Reuben or Simeon or any of the older brothers, it goes to the fourth one, Judah. And Judah stands in, and he, he advocates for the whole family and says, says, family, like, says, Dad, if we don't go, the whole family's going to die. So we need to take Benjamin from him. And he tells his dad, he says, look, I will stand in his place. If something happens to Benjamin, I will be the one that will take his place. I will, sell, I will put myself in his place. It's a, it's a better offer than what Reuben had done or just a few like, chapters ago. Like, hey, kill my sons if I don't make it. Like, like, no, Judah's like, no, I will be the one. Like, I will take it. So he advocates for the whole family. His dad relents and says, okay, go. And so they head to Egypt. So we see this picture of Judah being the one that stands in for the whole family. And then the scenario happens, they all eat together and they have, you know, Benjamin gets five times the food and they're all excited, happy. And, and Joseph tells them all to put their grain back in their bags and their money back in their bags, but then put my one cup of divination into Benjamin's. And then after they've left, then he says, now go catch him and tell him. And so the, the servant shows up and says, one of you stole this. And, and the brothers are all like, that's stupid. We didn't do that. There's no way. In fact, whoever did that, that person will be your slave forever. And one by one, they open up their satchels. And they realize as they get to Benjamin that the cup is in his. And so now they all rip their clothes. They're grieving. They're scared. They all know that, man, they, they realized how hard it was to get Benjamin there. So every brother's very aware of what's going to happen to dad if Benjamin doesn't come back or what's going to happen to them if Benjamin doesn't come back. And so they make their way back before Joseph. And what we just read, when he's saying, don't worry about it, what we just read here, right before that, from, from chapter 44, from like verse 16 to 34, one of the brothers speaks up again. And what should have been Reuben by birthright, it wasn't. It was Judah. Judah steps up, and he gives this long statement to telling Joseph what happened. Basically, Joseph knows it, but he's like, and he's doing it very humbly, like, if you would allow me, and your servant, and, and he's doing this really long speech. But ultimately what he says is he says, instead of taking Benjamin take me. Instead of, instead, of, instead of taking Benjamin as your slave, let me stand in place before. Here's Judah, whose very idea was to sell Joseph to the Ishmaelites. He was the very first person to like, hey, I got an idea. Let's make some money on this. Before he knows that whom he's speaking to is Joseph, he stands in and says, no, no, no. You need to, you need to take me instead of him because, because he is too precious. And I, I made a promise to do this, so my life for his life. And Joseph can't handle it. That's when he goes and weeps. And that's when he comes back and, and tells him, like, come near, I'm your brother. And don't worry about what you did. It's okay. Like, all that situation happens. And the reason why this is incredibly unique for us is that Judah is the son, is the, is the, the tribe. If we go to his blessing at the end of his life, Genesis 49, um, 8a and 10, it says, Judah, this is Israel giving his blessing on his deathbed to Judah. Your brother shall praise you. 
And then down in verse 10, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. So what Jacob is saying, or Israel at that time is saying to, to Judah is he's talking about, hey, there's a, there's a royalty that's coming from you, a kingship that's coming to you. A scepter was a, was a tool of, 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 of royalty, of kingship. And we see, and a scholar said it this way, so I'm just going to read it. He says, God tells King David, a descendant of Judah, that his throne would be established forever, confirming that the Messiah would be descended from him, 2 Samuel 7. The one who fulfills this prophecy is Jesus Christ, the son of David, a term which he took and used often, whose kingdom is eternal, 2 Peter 2, or 2 Peter 1. Jesus is the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, Revelations 5, 5. Because of Jesus Christ, the scepter has not departed from Judah. When he establishes his kingdom on earth, it will be one of perfect justice. Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness, Hebrews 1, 8 through 9. So we see here that that Judah is is stepping in as an opportunity to advocate for Benjamin. The first time that one of these brothers are starting to show some like, like, Let's, let's, let's copy or let's, let's follow them kind of attributes in the way they're living their life. Like, hey, we could do this. Like Judah, the whole thing with Tamar, no, not going to do that. But like, but this makes sense. You're living. And it's coming from the son whom the, the, the line of the Messiah comes from. So it's really important. Again, zooming out. I want to real quickly. Stay with me here. Zooming out. It's really important for us to see, oh, okay, Judah, the one who gets the blessing, who, the, who, who Jesus is of the descendant of, this is the tribe that the Messiah comes from, stands in and offers himself as a sacrifice for Benjamin. So he is making himself an archetype, a shadow, a view of standing in for Benjamin. And this is where I want to take you guys back down to the tree, Okay. We, we see God is doing his mighty work in his story. At the very same time, he's coming down very, very personally for you, for me, for Benjamin saying, no, 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 I, I, will, I will stand in place for him. And Judah is the one that is doing it, who is modeling the behavior for us to see when we look at this. And I said this a long time ago. A friend of mine said this, and he said that when you read the Old Testament, you're always supposed to ask, is this the one? Is this the one? Is this the one? The people that were growing up were always looking, is this the Messiah? Is this the promised seed? Is this, is this where it's coming? Is this where it's coming from? Is this where it's coming from? And the whole time, as you look at it, now Judah displays and models what we are supposed to see in the Messiah, but they don't know at this point, but we can look back and go, wow, look at that, Judah. You are doing exactly what Jesus has done for you and I. And so although this is a really big, profound, zoomed out story, guys, we can see it very personally here. Judah's coming in and saying, my life for Benjamin's. Jesus comes in and says, my life for yours. It's it's wonderful. It's a beautiful picture. Something that I didn't pick up on, and I'm I'm not not embarrassed, but I think it's funny. I'd never thought of this. You probably have all thought of this. But something I'd never thought about when you're looking and reading through the scriptures and trying to understand God's story in it and asking the question, is this the one? Is this the one? You're, You're supposed to always be looking through, like, how does this one get us to Jesus? What, is, what, is, what are we seeing here that's going to that's gonna show Jesus to us in this scripture? And what I think is very profound, if you go to 44 and you read chap, um, verses 30 on, you see that Judah isn't just advocating for Benjamin. He's also advocating for his father, which is another, again, just beautiful picture of what Jesus does. The, the analogy falls apart because God will not 
his, his soul will not go down to the grave if he doesn't have us. That's what, that's what Judah says of his father. But we see this picture of, of Judah playing the role of sacrifice for Benjamin so that Benjamin can come home to father who desperately wants him home. So in a moment, we see this beautiful picture, a shadow of what Jesus does for us where he advocates, even though we're guilty, the cup is in our hands. We did it. In this situation, I understand Benjamin didn't do it. Joseph did it to put him in that spot. But we, we are fully guilty. And Judah says, no, no, I'll take the punishment for it because I know how much dad wants Benjamin home with him. What a beautiful picture of the gospel. And so as I've been standing here trying to give you a little bit of cognitive dissonance as we're like, wait, what, how's this story working together? As we zoom way out, it's important now that we zoom way, way, way in that Jesus did that for you, for me. Those who bear the name of Christ, he, he did that and made us not only co-heirs, but like adopted us in as children, gave us rights to the kingdom. The whole time that Joseph's story is happening, we can see God working out his plan to, to preserve a remnant and at the same time meeting Benjamin's needs. So why couldn't God do that with you and I? If he can work out all of history through all these broken people and all sorts of evil to continue to keep his redemptive plan in work that he promised to do, then why couldn't he continue to do that in our lives today? And so as we zoom way out and remember like, okay, God, you're doing a lot. You're, you're, you're making your, your plan happen, but you're also zooming way, way in and going, oh, and you're, and you're advocating. You're, you're setting yourself up to save me. Through Jesus Christ, through the, through the death, burial, and resurrection, now I have a place in the story of God because of what Jesus has done, not because of what I have done. See, Jesus stands up for you, and he's bringing you to a father who wants you there. Guys, it hit me really hard. Maybe it was just for me this week. But it's not that, that Jesus is saving us from God's wrath, although that is he is doing. It's that God wants you with him. He's made a way for you to be with him, and it's not based on your own merit or your own doing. It's based on what he has done through Jesus Christ for us, in place of us. And he's doing that all the while he's holding together his whole redemptive plan of the people of God, in the place of God, in the presence of God, under the authority of God. So when you see it at both ends, you see way out, oh my goodness, God, you are doing such a great job at, at keeping this together and then you bring it all the way personal. It's like, oh man, like you wanted, you wanted me? Like this, this, this drops us to the core of our pride and our, our false, uh, false humility or whatever we have that gets in the way of God. We realize like he wants us, not because he's like, oh man, you're gonna do so much for my kingdom and I need you in that way. No, he wants us because he wants to be with you. And he created you beforehand to do the things that you're gonna do for his kingdom. So we, we, can, we can see both. So how, how does this tie into grace? Well, this is, this is how this ties into grace. If we're going to start talking about how are we going to be gracious to one another, I think it's really important for us to stop fixating ourselves on the individual situation. Because in Joseph's situation, Joseph could have extended grace a number of ways to his brothers that he just didn't do. Like it could have happened in a number of different ways. Like, like he could have just been merciful and not punished them. And that would have been, most people would have been like, high five, Joseph, good job. Yes, in Scripture, we see that the greatest point of grace is the mercy, the, the lack of punishment that God has given us in Jesus Christ, and then the undeserved favor, the grace he has given us in Jesus Christ. 
Joseph doesn't just be nice to his brothers. He does something that makes no sense at a great cost to himself, if you think about it. We know from the story, if you go further on, that these brothers don't actually believe this forgiveness and this grace that Joseph has given them. Dad dies, and they think they're in trouble later on. And that actually, like, brings Joseph to tears again. Like, they don't actually believe it. And so, so you got to assume, we got to assume that this was a weird relationship for quite some time, where Joseph extended this grace, and he did it. And it came at a great cost to him. He had to believe that Pharaoh would trust him and give him all the blessings that we're going to talk about next week and, or in a few weeks. And he had to, to kind of go at it, put himself out there, and I'm going to save your family at the risk of all the Egyptians being mad that all these, these Israelites are coming in. But Joseph did that. Why? Because he saw his part in God's story. In this moment, he understood that for him to be a part of God's story, for what God is asking of him in this moment wasn't to be vengeful, wasn't to just be merciful. It was to be gracious and to save a remnant. This is what he's, this is what he's supposed to do. So this is why we've been saying all along, we will flourish regardless of our circumstances when we see that we are part of God's story. So coming back to what I said last week about whom are we supposed to be gracious with, the reason why most of us struggle with this is because we've gotten too narrow. We are only asking the question, if I am gracious to this person, what is the cost to me? Not, God, what are you trying to do for your story? What part am I playing in your story in this life? Again, I don't save anyone. It's not my job. That's God's work. But he has invited us to be a part of his kingdom purposes. He's invited us to be a part of his redemptive plan. And so when, we extend, when, when I extend grace to someone, who, who's to say that I'm not doing what Joseph is doing with his brothers? It's fitting a bigger part of his redemptive plan that I have no idea about. So really, much of our day in and day out relational struggles are many times due to our inability to be obedient to what God is asking of us to do because we are only fixated on how it will affect us personally. The reason why I say obedient is because, again, the greatest act of grace is Jesus Christ for us. That's the greatest act of grace, restored relationship. There are many ways that we can be gracious that doesn't fully restore the relationship. God is in his, in his wonderful mercy and grace towards us, has given his Holy Spirit to help us discern how and what we are to be doing. He's leading us to move for him. So, so the very question, it may not be safe for you to jump into relationship with someone, and that may, be a, that may be a real thing. Some of the questions that some people asked last week, like, what do I do about this situation? It's not safe. But there might be, might, God might be asking you just to be merciful to them. Or grace in the situation might be grace in, in a different way to be gracious to them that's not restored relationship at the greatest level. But lots of us and many of us, and, and dare I say, a lot of the time, that's exactly what God's wanting us to do. But we can't get beyond the cost of the, the, the high cost it is to us personally, which I think is fixating ourselves on the tree, not the forest. Making it about what, it, what affects me and not seeing what God is doing in our lives. God is writing his story. And you and I have been drawn in by him and he has given us his strength to play the parts that he has created for us to do for, for, the good, for our good and for his glory. So when we, when we operate, when we start asking questions about anything in scripture, if we get too fine focus, we forget that the God is doing a bigger story. So it's important for us to stop and go, whoa, hold on a second. God has a, God has a purpose for us. 
He's, he's done it, but it's also incredibly personal. He's, he's individually sanctifying each of us. He's individually completing the work he began in us. He's using every scenario, every, every, every single thing to, to, to refine and grow us, to make us look more and more like Jesus Christ until he's completed the work with us. And so that means a, f- a few things. One is we're not there yet. We're still alive. We're still going. We still have purpose. We're not there yet. God's not done with us. It also means that God is working out his story in the life and through the life of his children, regardless of their brokenness. And it also means that he is passionately, ferociously, violently showing how much he wants you by Jesus Christ's life. So it's a very personal, very personal thing. We're not just some cog in some big story. No, he, he zooms all the way in and says, no, 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 dad wants you. I'm going to draw you to him. I'm going to bring you to him because dad wants you. And so we can, call him, we can call him dad. And so then when I have to ask the question of, well, where am I supposed to be more gracious? If all I'm asking it is from the lens of what does this cost me or how does this affect me? I've lost sight of the story of God. And if I just say, well, it's a part of the story of God, so I'm just not going to do anything, then I've lost sight of just how important and valuable he deems me by Jesus Christ doing. It's a, it's a both and. If I say, God has done everything for me on the cross, this is amazing, and I just sit around and do nothing, well, then I'm just lazy, and I like the the benefits of it, but I don't want the cost of it. If I spend all my life working hard, hard, hard to try and earn something that's been freely given to me, then I've lost sight of the value of what the redemptive purposes of God is. It's a both and. And this is an oversimplistic answer to grace or any other subject. There's many other caveats and things that play into this, but I really do believe that for us to see, you, you see this in the life of, of Joseph and his family. This is a family or issue. The Egyptians don't know about this. Maybe the, maybe the few of servants do, but like, it's not like we all know about it because it's been retained for us for history, but it's not like people are you know, in Ethiopia talking about Joseph and his family before it's ever happened. Have you heard about what's going on? Like They're not the, the up and coming like, series on Netflix for them right now. This is just a simple, difficult, painful, familial issue (laughs) that God, in that moment, put his story in and through and then individually connected with each of those people. So then the same is true of you and I. Our very interpersonal struggles in just our marriages or our friendships or or the, the struggles we're having within our church community, it seems small and and trying. Like it's not gonna be headline news. You're right, it's not. But God is at work in it doing his things and his purposes and his work for his glory. And so it gives me motivation, and hopefully you too. Maybe this is just for me this week, and you guys, this is free for you, and it just cost you an hour on Sunday, okay? But it gives me motivation to go, oh, man, I, I should be thinking about my life differently. Not only am I deemed incredibly valuable at a great cost to God in Jesus Christ. Like, he, he wants me. But I, I, can't, I can't sit and he just wants me. Now I, I want to do more for him, not because I feel like I have to, but because he loves me so well, I want to love too. And I want to see other people experience that hope and joy. So now when I'm saying, I don't know if I really want to be gracious to this person because of X, blah, 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 and might be really good reasons, all justifiable reasons. Well, they didn't really ask for forgiveness. Well, neither did Joseph's brothers. Okay, well, they didn't really, like, show much to Joseph. Okay, that's fine. Like, whatever your reasons are, they might be very justifiable reasons, but if the Holy Spirit is prompting you to say, be gracious to them, you have no idea what that might be doing in the story of God in those people's lives. So I can, 
I can be mad at Ryan, who's a friend of mine, and be like, I don't want to be gracious to Ryan. He's a, he's, a, he's, a, he's a punk. I'm not going to be gracious to him. But I don't know. It's not, none of that's true, by the way. He's a great dude. But I can, I can choose to say in this moment, that although it's going to cost me something to be give Ryan grace, to recognize that God might be doing something in Ryan's and mine and his family and the families of people around their story, um, story that I have no idea. But just by Joseph extending that grace to his brothers, think about the, the change that happened in that family and the generations to come and the way that God did his personal things. We don't get a lot of it. We don't hear much about Benjamin's life afterwards. But, but think what that moment of Judah stepping in, what that meant to Benjamin. Think what, think what all of those brothers felt, regardless of whether or not they actually believed it, what they felt when they were faced with Joseph. Like, wow, we really did bow down to him. Huh, who'd have thought? Maybe we shouldn't have sold him. Like, think about how that changed. But, but what we can say with absolute clarity, looking back at it now, is we can say God used it for his redemptive plan. So, so how, how foolish is it for me to forget or to think that he's not going to be using interpersonal stuff and relationship stuff in my life today for his redemptive plan, as if he stopped working? Like God finished it, the revelation was like, all right, nothing else to do. We'll just let this kind of run for a while. No, he's, he's still saving people. He's actively saving us. <laughs> he's working in us. So then when it comes to asking the question, who do I show grace to? Well, gosh, I mean, the more we learn and grow in our understanding of who God is, we start to see his purposes for our life, like Joseph did. We can flourish in this world, even though we are not home. <laughs> We're sojourners here, guys. This isn't home. We're part of his kingdom that's been inaugurated in Jesus Christ, but isn't fully here. So we can we can start operating with a with a with a little bit more like bounce in our step, like there's work to be done. The most holy God, the creator of all things, wanted me and accomplished it through this ridiculously intricate, messed up people story that we have in front of us. And, and in this story, he zoomed all the way in and said, Bren, come to me. You're mine. And then he says, Bren, not only as my child, now go do for me. I'm just standing around twiddling my thumbs going, this is cool. That would make me lazy. No, I, I now have motivation to live because I know now when I do something as simple as trying to figure out how to be gracious to Ryan, I know that there's actually bigger things happening in God's plan for both Ryan and I and everyone that's involved in that. It's a, it's a motivation thing. So, so again, who, who are you supposed to be gracious with? Well, I mean, this is why I said pray about it. How are you supposed to be gracious? God is, God is good. His spirit is alive. He will speak those things to us. So spend more time in prayer. Seek more counsel from healthy people. Like the, the Lord is at work. And, and when you do this, do it knowing that it may not change any circumstance in front of you. But, but we can trust. We can have faith knowing, well, God is still working his plan out. Even if I mess it up massively, God is still working his plan out. And he's still absolutely loves me. He's displayed that on the cross. So we have the most motivation to be the most gracious people ever because we have no idea how God is going to use that to bring about redemption in the life of us or anyone around us. That's, that's how we be gracious, by zooming out and going, oh, yeah, God, you're doing something. Forgive me for making this story about me. And at the same time going, oh, thank you, God, for bringing me a part of your story. 
Thank you for putting me into your story so that I can do for you by your strength to make you known and give you all the glory for it. Let me pray for us. Oh, sorry, no, I don't want to pray yet. I have three verses I want to leave you with. Sorry, I want to end with a few scriptures for you because I know inevitably what's going to happen after the conversations I had last week. Um, This is going to be hard. Like living your life with focus on the story of God is going to be hard because I don't know if you know this, but a lot of things in this world don't care about the story of God. And so you're going you're gonna, to you're gonna have to, you're going to be working against that. And so I wanted to leave you with a, a few scriptures that just maybe hopefully will encourage you and then the band will come up and then I will stop talking and we can, and I'll pray. Um, the first one is, is Psalm 27, 14. It says, wait for the Lord, be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. We see this word wait so often we think it's sitting and twiddling our thumbs. This is actually a waiting with anticipation that something's going to be coming. Like, you know, when you're like, like in my house when I'm, I'm trying to get out of the house and my wife is doing a wonderful job making herself like more beautiful than she already is, which is impossible, right? Sometimes waiting can be very impatient, but I am, I am, I am expecting that we will leave. <laughs> it's going to happen. We just might be later than I prefer, but like I'm waiting, right? It's, it's, there's the expectation. Of, and then there's waiting like, I don't know if this is ever going to come. I don't know if this is ever going to happen. This waiting that's here in Psalm is more of the former. It's, 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 we know it's coming, so wait with anticipation. Like, expect it to come. So take courage, church. Yes, it's going to be hard. Yes, you're going to need endurance. Yes, yes, it's going to be maybe longer than you expect, but it is coming, so wait. Wait on the Lord. Take courage. The second one, Hebrews 10, 23, just before the scripture I read with you guys earlier in the sermon. Let us hold fast our confession of our hope of what? Without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. This is why we can wait, because we're waiting for someone who has always been, always will, and always has been, and never will ever fail, and stay as many ways as they possibly can, at being faithful. We have it right in front of us. We can see him being faithful all the way through, even in this little verse, chapter 45, verse 7, remnant, like little spot right here. I'm going to be faithful right here. You're going to see this. He's faithful all the time. So we don't have to waver in this. We don't have to doubt. We can wait. And then the last verse I want to leave you with is, is James 1. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kind. Trials of various kind is, it, is, is hardship brought on you, not done by you. So when, 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 when you have hardship brought on you, count all joy. Why? Why would it be joyful? For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The story of the Bible, one scholar says it this way, the story of the Bible is about how God is relentlessly pursuing a relationship with humanity. He continues to strive to show us favor even when we betray him or turn our backs on him. Throughout the Bible, we see the God of the universe finds ways to reconcile with hard-hearted and rebellious humanity. And that's what it means when we say that God is gracious. May we too be a people that show and live and model the grace that we have been given by our God, not because we've white-knuckled it, we just gotta be, but because we understand who we are in the story, who the story's about, and how he wants us in this story. Now I'll pray for us. God, thank you so much for reminding me this week just how, um, how you wanted me, and you showed that through Jesus Christ, and you drew me to you through him. Um, thank you for uh, also not letting me sit in that and thinking that this story is entirely about me, but seeing that you have 
created me for a purpose of your redemptive plan to be played out in my life um, and the life of those that you have me in contact with. And so I pray, God, I pray as, as a church that as we start looking at trying to figure out how to be gracious or to give grace or to receive grace or, or whatever it, our, our wrestling is with any subject, God, I pray that we wouldn't lose the story for that individual topic. I pray that we wouldn't lose sight of what you're doing and what our purpose is here. God, you have a work for us to do. Um, and I pray that we would not um, take too much ownership of that work and, and think that we can change hearts, God, because only you change hearts. Um, I pray that we would just be excited and joyful and, um, and anticipating and waiting, like the psalmist says, in such a way that we are excited to see how you're going to bring about your redemptive plan in our life and the lives of those around us as we try by your own strength <laughs> to walk out obediently the works that you created beforehand for us to do to walk in. Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for um, reminding me. I just thank you for reminding me this week just how um, how much easier it is to look at um, all the hardships in this world when I look through the lens of what you're doing. Let's pray that we would um, not lose heart, we'd have courage, and we'd continue to walk in faith towards you. I pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. To find out more about our church, please visit revolution22.org or on the Church Center app. We encourage you not to neglect meeting together as believers, and may you continue to love God and love others.